Fleta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Fleta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Okay, I want to welcome everybody to our show, and I have a special guest today. His name is Keith Grosshell. He has 22 years of law enforcement experience and, and the majority of his career working on narcotics investigations. He's worked in various levels of law enforcement from the local level to the federal level and including international levels. Uh, he's certified as an expert witness. He's an, also is an author. He's published a, uh, an award-winning movie script. He's also a seasoned instructor. He has taught narcotics investigators at top levels of law enforcement for over 30, over 30 national police forces. He also served as a chief of police and held many prominent leadership positions, both nationally and internationally. So I want to welcome uh, Keith. How are you today, Keith? I'm doing well, Larry. Thank you for having me on the show today. Great. It's an honor to have you on. And uh, Keith, you know, there's a lot of us that spent you know, the, the majority of our career working, uh, drug cases I did, I worked them as a, uh, Maryland state trooper. I worked undercover in narcotics and then I went over to DEA and, and, uh, had a really great career and finished up and, and now, so we're, you know, looking forward to talking to guys like you who, who work the streets and understand, right. uh, the problems, you know, that, that, uh, accompany us every day. So Keith, tell us a little bit about your career. Well, I feel I've been pr pretty blessed in my career. I've done a, a little bit of everything. I've worked at the city level, the county level, the state level, federal level, and then international as well. Um, I started my career like most police officers do as a uniform patrol officer. Spent about three years on uniform patrol, focused in community policing, but I always had a, a knack for catching drug dealers. And it was something that I wanted to do, but I worked for a small agency and they didn't have a full-time narcotics unit at the time. So they allowed me to do some part-time undercover work here and there, but I made plenty of mistakes, but still made a lot of arrests. And I was always eager to learn from the more seasoned investigators at the larger agencies. And after three years, I decided to change agencies and go to a, a much larger agency. And while I was in orientation, unbeknownst to me, they came in and pulled me out of orientation and said, from now on, you're assigned to vice narcotics, you'll be working undercover and you're not going to associate with any police officers off duty. And here's your first assignment. <laughs> it was kind of, kind of mind blowing <laughs> to be honest with you. I was excited about it at the same time, but I didn't know it was coming. So right. I, I did that. It was supposed to be a few months long, it ended up being a year long undercover assignment. And then I got recruited by the sheriff's office to come work with them. And they put me in the vice narcotics really quickly. I spent another three years working deep undercover cases for them. I uh, worked in an array of cases and learned a lot of different things from anything from like street level narcotics to prostitution, to human trafficking, to purchasing kids, posing as a pedophile, to murders for hire, 
you name it, just an array of cases. And, and I always had the ambitions to achieve the highest level of drug enforcement. And that's when I decided I want to apply with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. And, you know, as you know, I went through that long hiring process. It yeah. took about two years to get hired on and um, got hired on and ended up getting stationed in Western Kansas. And uh, it's a pretty eye-opening experience for me, you know, in the middle of the United States, different drug trends uh, coming from the West Coast, obviously, to the East Coast, most of them at the time. And the drug prices were drastically reduced compared to what I've been dealing with. And I started seeing massive, large amounts and large quantities of drugs that were coming in from Mexico, hitting I-70, going to East Coast to West Coast. And, uh, and, and I, and I love what I was doing, but you now after six years total working undercover, you kind of get burned out a little bit with it. And it's very tough on family life, tough on children. It's tough on every every aspect, mentally and physically. And at that time, I, I had to make a decision, and I actually resigned from the DEA and decided to go do contract work overseas for the U.S. federal government. And uh, that's how I ended up in Afghanistan. Right. Spent a few years there, got injured in Afghanistan, and worked my way back to the United States. Uh, once I was able to go back to work, I became the lead investigator for the largest prosecutor's office in the state. Then I had opportunity to become a chief of police, uh, served as chief of police, and then I started doing contract work again, which led me to Haiti for a couple of years and then uh, two years in, in West Africa and Liberia. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit from your early beginnings working uh, um, undercover narcotics. You mentioned you were with a smaller department. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you did, were you trained, or what type of cases that uh, that you get involved in? Absolutely. No, it was a smaller agency, around about 50 officers. And at the time, they had what we call general investigators. Everybody invest. If you're in investigations, you investigate all types of crimes. Nobody was really a specialist at the time. And they did a long time before have a narcotics investigator. Predominantly, that's all they did. But they were gone. So when the opportunity came up to work drug cases, you know, there weren't that many people that really wanted to work it at the time in the agency. So the older guys kind of took me under their wing and kind of showed me some of the ropes on how to work. But I made plenty of mistakes. I, I really didn't know what I was doing because I'd never been through any formal training on right. undercover tactics or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So as a matter of fact, my first drug deal, I got robbed huh. and the guy took my money and took off. And I and I came out of my role and went after him, which is a trick typical cop move, yeah, you know, yeah. going after the guy instead of taking your losses and just getting the heck out of Dodge. And I was more embarrassed. I think my ego was hurt a little bit. And uh, so I chased him down to get my money back. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it was a, a great learning experience for me. And I'm just glad I was able to walk away, you know, and not, not yeah. get killed or injured severely doing stupid stuff. Well, you're, you're not alone in, in losing uh, money on a drug deal. That's for sure. Cause, uh, <laughs> I, I learned my lesson the hard way too. Don't front the money, right? The old saying, never Absolutely. front the money. Yeah. Yeah. I had a the guy. Dangerous time in a drug deal. I, I had a guy. Comes out. Yeah. I had a guy I gave the money to, he went into an apartment and then he went out the back door. So I never saw him after that. So that was a good, <laughs> that was a good learn, a good learning experience. It happens to the best of them. Yeah, it, it does. But, um, so you, you can look and, and, and pretty much appreciate, you know, working on that level, local level, uh, learning from your mistakes, 
because I, I would take it that, you know, a lot of times, even back in my career, when I look back at it, you know, I was working undercover by myself, uh, no backup, yeah. doing buys, uh, you know, doing stuff like that, which, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, was never injured or potentially injured in a situation like that. But, you know, as we all know how dangerous working undercover really is, um, and even Very being, much. and even being set up by informants. So I, you know, I've been there, I understand. And then it's difficult because, um, you know, you're looking for guidance and, and, and direction. So, um, yeah. so you were basically buying, uh, street drugs, right? Yeah, initially I started out, just as you said, I started out by myself. Um, they put me undercover in an ecstasy ring, the underground rave scene, the nightclubs, all night dance parties. I did that because I was a younger officer. Sure. The first thing I did was platinum bleach blonde my hair, got piercings, tried to fit in with that crowd. And that ended up going very well. We arrested 47 different drug dealers in the, like a three, three and a half month operation approximately. And then uh, they asked me to pose as, a, as an addict and purchase like crack and heroin and things like that, which right. was a totally different, you know, atmosphere than I was in before. This was, you know, in, in the high crime, lower socioeconomic uh, status areas. And you just right. roll in by yourself, as you indicated, right. and you're buying drugs. And I ended up buying off of a couple of cop killers, guys that had already killed cops and served time and got out. And you don't know the level of people that you're dealing with until after it's almost too late, yep. you know, and you could have been, could have yeah. been shot and killed. And it's, it's very dangerous by yourself. I prefer to have a partner, but you know, bringing in a partner sometimes brings in an unknown risk because you don't know what they're saying on the side. And if you mix your cover stories and yeah. come back to bite you, but I was blessed to have a few good partners over the years as well. Right. Okay. So then you eventually move on to the sheriff's office. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your career work in uh, different cases there. Yeah. So the sheriff's office was a, a different boat for me. It was a, you know, a much larger agency, the top three largest sheriff's office in the state of South Carolina. Um, jurisdictional boundaries were enormous, over 750 square miles. So I could work a series of cases on the south end of town and where they actually did some by bust or something like that. I tried to keep it long term and do by walks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, keep it simple to where I could continue to work long term. But if there was a buy bus, we had to take somebody down for some reason or another. I could continue to work cases in the same county because it was so enormous that a lot of times they don't always know each other. Sure. Or they at least didn't communicate with, with one another. And uh, so I, I was blessed to go to, you know, a federal undercover school at the time when I was there. And it opened my eyes to what I didn't know. And, you know, coming back from that school is when, you know, I did my first murder for hire, uh, started buying automatic weapons, um, you name it, uh, the sky, the sky's the limit. Once people and other investigators in different units discovered that we were willing to do about any type of undercover deal and we understood sure. how to do them, uh, the homicide guys would come to us, the property crimes guys would come to us. Right. And anything from buying back stolen guns to, like I said, murders for hire. And uh, so it was a, it was a great experience. It was a top notch uh, unit that I was in. And, you know, there was 
predominantly a couple of us that worked like deep, true undercover, and right. the rest were narcs, spice and narcotics guys, you know, plain clothes, but right. did the occasional, you know, prostitution sting and, and did a lot of big cases and managed our cases for us a lot of the times, which made it made me more able to be able to work undercover. Tell us a little bit about uh, one of the cases that kind of stand out in your mind. Yeah, the one, I, I mean, there's a lot of them, but one that really sticks out in my mind and kind of blows people's minds when they hear about it was we had received information about a mother that was selling her child for sexual favors. And my partner and I got involved with the case. We didn't necessarily believe the informant totally as many informants they blow a lot of smoke sure. so we had him play some phone calls some recorded calls and sure enough you know some of the things he was telling us she's actually corroborating that information so we ended up setting up a deal where she was going to bring the child uh for me to meet in a hotel room for several hours and obviously do sexual acts with the child. And in order for us to get her to do an overt act other than, you know, meet us with the child at the hotel room, we, we kind of made it a little bit um, more appealing to the jury by asking her if she would bring different flavors of jelly so we can put them, have the child put them on our body and lick them off. And sure enough, she showed up with the child with the different flavors of jelly. And uh, all that really did, it sounds sick, but all it really did was, solidified the case to show that she did more than just the act of the telephone call and the act of bringing the child. She actually went to the store, purchased the items, and then showed up with the child and showed up with another man who was also armed as her protection. Hmm. How long has she been doing it? Do you know? You know, I really don't know. I know uh, it had been going on for quite some time and the child was pretty young under the age of 12. And wow. We ended up obviously taking the child. The child went into state's custody. Um, last I had heard, obviously, the child went into foster care and was adopted and was getting the help that they needed. But it's just, you know, it, yeah. it was a pitiful situation, uh, kind of eye-opening. And now you hear a lot more about things like that. But back when that occurred, you know, you know, not many people were even talking about human trafficking, right. much less, you know, pedophiles and their own parents selling a child for a drug yeah. addiction. And that's what it boiled down to. She needed money for drugs. Right. And she was willing to sell her own child to get those drugs. Yeah, it's it's amazing how drugs has an effect in in different uh in different ways and, and all types of crimes and criminal activity that's uh you know evolved with uh with, with drugs. Um which which makes absolutely which makes the uh you know in in terms of what we did for a living interesting, I guess if you call it that. Yeah. So, uh, for sure. And that was what I did when, when I became later on, once I got out of working undercover, when I became chief of police, I trained my entire department in drug enforcement because it's just exactly what you said. There's a nexus to all to drugs in every crime. About 95% of all crimes have some sort of a drug nexus, whether sure. it be domestic violence because they're high or under the influence of something or thefts because they're stealing to sell it, to support their drug habit or violence as a result of taking drugs. I mean, there's an array of different cases. So when we did that, we increased our drug arrests and our drug crimes detected 287%. And in a short period of time, two years, we went from the number 28 safest city in the state to number one in the state of South Carolina. Yeah. And it was drug enforcement related. So my right. any pointers I would give to any leaders 
is make sure your narcotics unit is well equipped because they will be the ones that will solve many of your murders, many of your burglaries, many of your other crimes, not just narcotics. Absolutely. So as you moved on to your, uh, career in the, on the local side, and then, uh, you decided to take the federal plunge and, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, like, like I said, I, I really wanted to achieve the highest level. You know, anybody who works vice narcotics for any period of time, you can't be lazy. You have to be proactive. You have to self-initiate. And, and I was a go-getter. So, you know, I pushed hard to get to the academy, did very well in the academy, and um, got out of the academy, went to Kansas. And it was pretty far away from any family for me. Sure. Um, 20-something hour drive. You know, my wife at the time, and we had one child, and we had a second child while we were there. My other son was born, and she went through a tough time with a postpartum depression. And, you know, I was working undercover, and I was gone all the time, and it just compounded. A lot of factors came into it. I felt like at the time I I really needed to make a decision, my family or the job. And to me, that's a pretty simple decision. And, uh, you know, I resigned. BEA was my dream job, and and I resigned from it kind of – surprised my my rack my supervisor when i turned in my resignation he thought i was joking and said no keith what are you talking about man and threw it back at me and i was like for real i I tried to get a hardship and transfer i I tried several things i was going to try out for the dea fast team Uh they had a freeze on that at the time and then i got in contact with an old narc buddy of mine who was in afghanistan at the time and literally i put in my paperwork and two weeks later I was told, hey, you ready to go to Washington for some training? And the day that the moving truck showed up in Kansas, I flew to Washington mm-hmm. and did training there for a couple of weeks. And then I flew into Afghanistan. And years later, you know, I, it was it was a great experience for me, someone who had never served in the military but grew up in a Marine family. My dad was a Marine for 22 years. I was a military brat. Mm-hmm. Had the utmost respect for anyone who serves and it just gave me the opportunity to work alongside of them as a police expert. And, uh, I I really enjoyed it. They were very respectful towards us as well. Oh yeah. Well, going back a little bit to your DEA career, uh, I know you let, you mentioned Kansas and what, what kind of cases, uh, did you get involved with? Predominantly with the cartels. Um, most of the stuff, you know, came in from tech, from Mexico through Texas came up some of the back roads and it hit the I-70, which runs across the top of Kansas, runs through Western Kansas. And, you know, it's a distribution network for the whole nation pretty much mm-hmm. from there. And, and little did I know working undercover, I was buying, uh, I think it was a pound of crystal meth one time. And the guy quoted me a price that was so low that I felt like he was trying to set me up for a robbery. Mm-hmm. And, but I was unfamiliar with the prices being three times as low as they were. For example, it was 6,000 pounds for a pound or $6,000 for a pound of crystal meth. And it was the highest purity level you'll see. And back in South Carolina, it was 18,000 for that same quantity. So for me, that's a red flag. So I I became suspicious of him thinking he just wants me to show up with a little bit of money so he can jack me. Right. And uh, long story short, it wasn't. And And he brought the drugs and they were real. It was legit. And it was just a you know, a, a funny experience for me and uh, seeing how inexpensive drugs are and, and the quantities of drugs that I saw at the federal level just blew away. 
what I was seeing at the local level, sure. uh, at least in my agency on mm-hmm. the East Coast. Now, I had the, the honor to work with a lot of the DEA agents based in Greenville, South Carolina, when I was there and did some undercover work with them and involved in some T3s and wiretap investigations. And that really helped me a tremendous amount when I went federal because it's always about, you know, follow the money. Karen Tandy was the administrator at the time, and that was her motto, follow the money. And we traced it. You, you get some phone calls, you trace it down. Let's, where's the money coming from? So seeing, seeing the quantities of drugs, we had a case where we got kilos of heroin, 15 kilos of China white heroin. And on the outside of the kilos, it said like one of 850. And then the next one to say two of 600. Was, and then the next one said three of 800, as if it came from three different loads. And, and we're talking over a billion dollars, you know, retail value. If you break it down into small quantities, we're not talking, it's a million dollars a kilo you know, in retail on the street in small quantities, dummy down, you know, it's 87% pure is what it came back at. And that that's very pure considering on the streets, heroin was only three to 6% pure. And it was just a, just a great experience for me, man. It was a yeah. great organization, excellent at gathering intelligence. Uh, the best that I've seen as far as that goes and sharing the intel and their native system, you know, narcotics and dangerous drug information system. That was phenomenal for me because I, I spent countless hours plugging in information and it came back to me. You know, other guys were doing the same thing and girls. and It, it was wonderful. You know, I do miss that element of investigations, being able to take them to the next level, not just local, but a much larger level covering the world or 85 plus countries. Well, the one thing about working on the local level as a beginning really gives you a foundation um, as you work your way up and go into the federal level. That's kind of the way I felt. I agree. And no, you're a hundred percent right. And the DEA supports that, that notion as well. They always said the locals are our bread and butter. Absolutely. And and I firmly believe that without them, the DEA wouldn't really exist. You can't send an agent from South Carolina into Western Kansas and expect them to be successful without working with the locals that know the area. Yeah, it was, it's a great concept. I mean, DEA is comprised of a lot of former law enforcement people. So I I think, uh, you know, we call, uh, we call DEA the blue collar feds, uh, because they understand, they understand, you know, where everybody came from. And, uh, so, for sure. um, but, uh, yeah, but anyways, so you, you got to see the, the different type cases. I think you made the right decision because I, I, I believe that, uh, my family's first and foremost, um, I made career choices myself and I decided to stay, you know, as a senior agent could have went to management route, but, uh, didn't want to get, you know, get bounced all over the country along with my children. So you made the right decision. Yeah. And I know I made the right decision uh, because at the end, Absolutely. Of, because at the end of the day, we're all replaceable. So, um, for sure. So anyways, um, now uh, you left there and then you went into um, Afghanistan and tell us about your experience there. So and right when I got in Afghanistan, they were, they were having issues with a program called the ANCOP program is the Afghan national civil order police, which was basically their national SWAT team and their riot teams. And, you know, I initially went in, I was a tactical rifle instructor. They liked my DEA experience, my tactical narcotics experience and different things like that, because Afghanistan at the time supplied 95% of the world with opium used to produce heroin. 
So that was funding Al Qaeda and all the terrorist networks around the world. So it was a big deal, the poppy eradication program there. So I got involved in that program about three months in. I was blessed enough to get promoted to be the national commander over the special forces units there. I had 144 Americans that were phenomenal that I worked with that were experts in law enforcement, trainers and advisors. And we trained a 5,000 man unit to basically go after the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in the area and, and assist with poppy eradication and other programs that were ongoing. I took it that you guys got engaged with the Taliban? Absolutely. It was, you know, pretty much a common occurrence there. Not only did we do that, it was one thing that was very sad was, you know, the Taliban was paying a salary to their people just the same as the police were. And there was a constant competition. If the police were being paid $125 a month, the Taliban would come up to 130 bucks a month. But the difference was at nighttime when the police officers went home, if they didn't join and assist the Taliban, they would execute their families. Hmm. So it was kind of like that. Some of them were policed during the day and Taliban at night. Unfortunately, it was a life or death situation for some of them. And it, right. it put them in a really difficult situation. And then, you know, when you're in a special forces unit, a national unit, your family may be in one province. You deploy across the country and you may not come home for months and months where your family's vulnerable right. because of the Taliban runs that community right there. And that was, you know, some things that we saw that we dealt with. You know, I dealt with uh, the general over that unit a lot and had a lot of daily discussions with him. It was it was it was sad. There were a lot of deaths, you know, that occurred with their guys. Thank God not. I didn't lose any of my guys uh, American wise, but um, it was pretty common occurrence. You have some of them shot. They didn't have the proper equipment. Uh, at first, they initially didn't have body armor. Then we started upgrading and getting the body armor, getting them additional trainings and things like that. And they got better and better and better to where the, the kill ratio for Taliban versus our officers was a, a drastic difference. You know, right. we were taking down some of the worst of the worst. And um, at the time, Osama bin Laden was still on the run. And, and our units was also assisting different, you know, uh, government organizations within the feds. Mm-hmm. to uh, try and track down in the, it's, it's a mountainous community, you know, our mountainous country. And you can't just drive a four wheeler or a truck through. You have to literally take a donkey trail mm. and to get through the mountains. So it, it was a lot of trekking on foot and a lot of things. And, you know, everybody tried to put as many calories in their body as they could, but you were going to, you were bound to lose weight because, you know, down to South and Canada, 130 degrees, you know, and then it's cold during the winter time, and it was just a, a great experience. But I always found the drug nexus. You know, everywhere I go, and once you're a narc, you're always a narc. It's, it's in your heart. It's what you go after, and you know, it's uh, drugs can be the root to almost everything evil, and, and you go after it. How, how long were you deployed in Afghanistan? Just over two years, and I was injured there and forced to come home. Had a few surgeries, and uh, got back into law enforcement and work my way up to be, become the lead investigator for the largest prosecutor's office here in the state, which is in Greenville and Pickens counties in South Carolina. And uh, that was a good experience. And then an opportunity came to be the chief in the town that I lived in. And so I applied for that and became chief of police and ran into a uh, uh, kick the political hornet's nest when I refused to overlook some some violations that I have found involving, you know, past employees, current mm-hmm. employees. Right. And uh, I put my foot foot down on it and immediately almost lost my job. And I fought for 14 months 
to get my job back, got my job back. They had to back pay me for 14 months because I was actually the whistleblower. And then during that time when I came back, we did 40-plus community-based programs. Like I said earlier, we increased our drug arrest, drug crimes detected 287%, and we became the number one safest city. And uh, it was great for about two years, and then an election happened, and a new city council was seated. And during that time period before that, we had indicted the mayor, and he was convicted in a three-day trial. We had indicted the head of investigations for 20-something years prior to my time as chief for uh, tampering with evidence to cover up suspects in a murder and a rape, and he pled guilty to that. So I, I basically kicked the hornet's nest the whole time I was there, but yeah, it sounds As you like know, it. narcs, that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> As a narc, we go after the problem. We don't hesitate. You know, there's there's no stopping in us. So, unfortunately, that was tough. So, I was forced, you know, to resign from there. And then I went back overseas again. And that was when I went to Haiti. And I was the United States contingent commander in Haiti. And then I was assigned to the Haitian uh, national SWAT team. And that was a, a very deadly environment for me. Um, the, as you know, the Colombian cartels, uh, use Haiti as a transshipment point for cocaine coming to the United States. So 10% of all the cocaine coming in the United States comes through Haiti as a transshipment point. So I coordinated things with some of my buddies with the DEA to work with our DEA equivalent, which is BLTS. It's a French acronym in, in, in uh, Haiti there. And we were able to take out some large loads coming and, and things like that. But it was a, uh, it was an uphill battle. They had a lot of money The the, the gangsters there because the Colombian cartels, you know, supplied them and uh, did that for a couple of years, was offered a position to be the senior law enforcement advisor in Liberia, in West Africa. I just got back from there. Uh, I was a senior advisor to the inspector general um, who I, I really developed a, a close working relationship with and uh, appreciated his his approach to law enforcement. He was he had a mindset of an art. You know, he was a tough guy. But yet he understood the community element. And uh, I think he did the best he could with the environment he was put in, which was a very difficult one. And uh, and, and he's still still the inspector general to this day. And that's, you know, that's an appointment by the president, which is highly political as well. well going back to your time as police chief, and I, <clears throat> I know that, uh, you know, once you take those type of positions, uh, some are being, you know, they're being made political and et cetera. How large of a department were you in charge of? It was over just over 50 employees. And uh, so a smaller, smaller, not too small, but a smaller agency. I was uh, appointed by seven elected officials, six city council members and one mayor. And you had to have a majority vote at all times or else they could remove you from office at any time. So for me, you know, I always tell people being a chief of police, is is harder than being a sheriff you're a sheriff for a year you got to run do the politics and once you get it you're guaranteed your four years unless you get criminally indicted and convicted but as a chief you're not guaranteed tomorrow and you always politicians never agree on anything so you're always teeter-tottering and trying to so for me i came in with the approach i'm just going to do the right thing i'm not here to, to kiss anybody's butt or anything like that i'm going to do the right thing and if I don't last because of that, or somebody doesn't like me, when bad people don't like you, so be it. That means you're doing the right thing. So it was tough, you know. It, a high, hot political environment with some corruption, yeah. you know, and you blow the whistle on it, 
and then people get convicted and they get exposed and they were looked at as pillars in the community and no longer are looked at it that way. Right. What are they going to do? They're going to try and discredit the source. Of course. You know, and that yeah. just so happens something to be me partially involved in it, although I wasn't involved in the early on of those cases. But, you know, I was the one who kind of took the stand and, you know, took the bullets, so to speak. Right. And uh, it was it was tough, but I'll do it all over the, the same way. I maybe would be a little less rigid. In my approach, you know, being a young chief, I just felt like if you only if you do the right thing, they'll never get anything on you. Right. That was my approach. Well, little did I know people are dishonest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew that, but I didn't know they would be public about it. And it was a it was a tough situation. And you don't know to what extent they are, too, because uh, you're at a disadvantage in, in going into a, a different system. But um, fortunately, you're able to root out the corruption uh, because, you know. Yeah, it does exist, and uh, it's not just local agencies, but it's also on the local, state, and federal level because people are people, For and sure. and greedy becomes a whole different issue, and then you know corruption For sure. has its own ugly form. But again, there's no, as I always say, that there's no room for crooks in law enforcement. Uh, they don't deserve absolutely to have the badge on their chest. Um, so. Your career uh, has been very interesting, and uh, sounds like you did a lot of a lot of good things, a lot of different things. You know, working internationally, you got exposed Afghanistan, Haiti, and yeah. Liberia. Are you still doing things in in Liberia, or or what are you doing now? No, I'm I'm back during COVID. They laid off everybody, and I'm back now. You know, I'm I'm looking for the next the next opportunity for myself. I do consulting work here and there, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to actually get back in local, possibly a chief of police position somewhere. But a lot of times, once you've kind of done what I've done as a chief of police, people don't know if you're the problem or the solution. Right. And, you know, it gives, it gives, it kind of scares people. And the reality was I never went in looking for a fight. I never looked for anything, but I'm not willing to overlook things when I find them. Yeah. And that was, and that was my approach. And maybe, you know, somebody will give me an opportunity and, they'll see wonderful things that take place, not because of me, but because I know how to put the right people in the right places to lead. Well, sure. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, people, some people expect you to turn a blind eye and that's always the root of corruption, turning a blind eye. And, uh, eventually you do, they got you in their pocket. Exactly. And it all catches up, uh, eventually. So, um, very true. So tell us a little bit about, I know you, you wrote, uh, you wrote some books and stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about the books you published. Yeah, I, I started, you know, well over 15 years ago or when I was working undercover, I started taking notes on some of my cases and kept copies of the incident reports and things like that. And I did it originally to tell my kids what I was doing. Cause I was gone all the time right. when they got older. I wanted them to understand what daddy was doing. Well, I told a few stories to a few friends here and there. And, and next thing I know, everybody's like, man, you need to, you need to write a book about that. So I started mm-hmm. writing a book about 15 years ago. And then, uh, I got quarantined for 22 weeks in Liberia when coronavirus hit and I, I was able to finish up my book. So I wrote a four book series, uh, about true stories based on true stories of working deep undercover at the city level, the county level, and then the federal level. And then the fourth book in the series actually ends talking about the drug nexus that I found as chief of police in Afghanistan and Haiti and Liberia and things like that. 
and kind of introduce potentially a future book series or books about contracting work as a police officer. But the, the series is the first book is about working undercover as a city police officer and, and many mistakes that I made and kind of my upbringing and some significant things that happened in my life. Books two and three in the series are working undercover for the sheriff's office, which I did for about three years for them and, and did an array of different cases. And then book four is from the hiring process with the DEA, with the feds, all the way through my, my tenure with the DEA and the different cases that I worked and things like that. Obviously, every name's been changed. All the city's names have been changed. You know, you have to put based upon a true story. Right. Um, but there's over 350 photos and copies of newspaper articles in there with certain information redacted just to prove to authenticate the stories and kind of put some put some pictures with some of the stories so people can relate a little bit better than just the words that are in there. But the books have been been out in the market now, not too long, actually, since September. And uh, I pushed them out during coronavirus. It was probably not a good time. But uh, they can be found on Amazon. The series is called A Narc's Tale. And I also have a website. It's uh, groundsoulbooks.com. Groundsoul is my last name. It's grounds without the D and cell. G-R-O-U-N-S-E-L-L books.com. And on that website, you can get links to my YouTube channel where I have, you know, over 50 videos of different uh, operations and different things I was involved in, you know, overseas, internationally and different you know, uh, law enforcement things, but, um, I appreciate you, you having me on here and being able to talk about the books and talk to fellow law enforcement citizens and narcs out there. Yeah. Cause uh, we can all learn from one another. Oh, there's no doubt. And, you know, I, I guess the reason that I'm doing this is, is to really expose the danger of what people do working drug investigations. It doesn't matter what level, uh, but yes. Uh, it does tell the general public how dangerous it is out there in the real world. Um, and then I know you you you, you consulted on a uh, an award winning movie script. So w- what's going on with that? Yeah. So so I told one of my one of my stories that's in the book. I actually told the story uh, uh, to a producer, and I helped him with the script. And he did you know a, sh- a short film on it, and it won several you know awards international film festivals is it's uh called bound the human trafficking story and is the case that i accidentally got involved in with the feds as you know like we talked about all crimes are linked together through drugs somewhere we're on up on title three wiretaps for drugs and we get involved with human trafficking with young girls and um so that's that's what that story is about and it talks about the process by which how they keep the girls captivated and how they keep their families back home in the dark and, and they led to believe these girls are in the United States on, in some private schools and getting this education, this grand education. And the families are actually sending money, hmm. which is crazy, but you know, right. they're not able to say anything because they'll either kill the girls or kill their families. So, I mean, what do you, what are you going to do? So the girls love their families. So right. they just take it and they, they become addicted to drugs. and It's just a, a cycle. You know, and they use them. I, I had a drug trafficker tell me one time, he goes, man, why would I sell drugs when I can sell people? You sell drugs, you make profit one time. I can buy one person and sell them thousands of times and make profit thousands of times. Right. That was scary. Yeah. You know, when I heard that, I was like, that's the trend. That's where we're going with these criminal organizations. And sure enough, over the last 10 years, 
that's the direction a lot of these cartels have gone. They right. use drug nexus also for their distribution network and to get in with the criminal element. Mm-hmm. But make no mistake about it, they're all involved in human trafficking. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what yeah. we see and right it's now. Very sad. Yeah, it's very sad. And you see what's happening on the border now and how they're being exposed about human trafficking. It's just, uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But back to bound, how, how do we find that, Keith? I believe, uh, uh, I believe it's on, uh, in Amazon. Okay. I want to say thank you. I think there's a link. If not, I'll provide a link on my website. If they go to groundselbooks.com, mm-hmm. I'll have a link on there as well. Okay. And, um, make sure that people can tap into that. And, uh, it's pretty interesting. The, it's also in the book in, in volume four of the book, a much more detailed version, obviously in a movie, you can only put so much, but sure. all the behind the scenes, my book is very, very detailed from all the mindset to every little thing I do from undercover props, making fake drugs, using fake drugs, acting like I'm under drugs, the stresses that it added on me, the environment, everything about it. So it's, it's really for all audiences, not cops only. Sure. But a cop, if you want to read it, it's, it's going to teach you a lot. But I would have never put the books out there if it wasn't for all these TV shows that already have put out the information. It's just all in one. Sure. You know, there's so much information. Now they follow narc units all around. Right. Back in the day, you know, we were given an opportunity to have a TV producer follow us. We were supposed to take over a, a spot on court TV and we just couldn't come to an agreement because they didn't want to disguise our voice and we we didn't want to expose trade secrets, but they're all out there now. And, right. and I wouldn't obviously be the first guy to do something like that. Cause I, I wouldn't want to, you know, risk the life of an undercover, but maybe it can serve as a deterrent to some people to let them know how detailed oriented that police actually are. We don't make every little decision we make on an undercover transaction is thought out. Now, some of them are spontaneous, but we know there's consequences to every action that we take. Sure. And that is the hardest part, but mm-hmm. we don't want to hesitate because if you hesitate, you get killed. Exactly. So it's, yep. it's such a fine line. You walk as police and we're human beings. Of course we make mistakes. Every human being makes mistakes, but I just asked the public, you know, just to understand you got a human being in a high stress environment. They're trying their very best to rid the community of bad people. Give them a break, yep. you know, work with them. If they're flat out an evil officer, just like you said earlier, we don't like dirty cops. We hate dirty cops. We would rather bust one dirty cop than a hundred drug dealers, Yeah, you know, just to get them off the street because they spoil it for all of us, all yeah. the hard work that we do, put our heart and soul into this. Yeah, no doubt and about it's, it. Just, it's, it's sad where we're at now. Yes, it is. Today's times. Well, Keith, I want to thank you for coming on our podcast. Um, and I want to thank you for your years that you spent in law enforcement, working undercover, taking those unnecessary risks uh, for your country. And uh, we all certainly appreciate it. And again, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Larry. Keep doing what you do and spread the message of what we actually do on a day-to-day basis. God bless you. Thank you. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.